A few days ago, and it really was only a few days ago, though it seems like a lifetime in some ways, we observed the day of Pentecost. Now, we couldn't do that without talking a great deal about the Holy Spirit and, I hope, gaining some understanding, if not significant understanding, about the topic because it's part of what the day is about, that is, learning that material and, of course, appreciating that material. And we did talk about it. In fact, we talked about it so much, I I was somewhat surprised. I had already planned the sermon I intended to give today, but I wanted to make sure that I was alert to what got covered on the day of Pentecost. So I even did a little due diligence and talked to Mr. Burnett and Mr. Giese about what they were going to give on Pentecost. And I discovered, well, it's no big problem. They are speaking on subjects that are absolutely Pentecost material, but they're not covering what I was planning to cover. Big deep breath. Show up here on the weekly Sabbath and two much younger men, Mr. Demarest and Mr. Townsend, come up here and obliterate, you know, the material I thought I was going to give. And I I actually appreciated that very much. They did a fine job. I went to the Pentecost service the next day and Mr. Burnett and Mr. Giese covered their material as they had said they would. And I looked at it all and I thought, this is terrific. It's wonderful material. It's a wonderful holy day. I'm happy. And I think I can still give my sermon. Now, you may think it unwise, or ignorant maybe, for me to embark on a further exposition of the topic of the Holy Spirit. I must admit I had a second thought or two as I listened to all those guys, but I found it rather interesting that they were amazingly on point, and yet I could still give the material I planned because I tend to be somewhat simplistic and it works out real well that way. Just yesterday, I scratched from my notes 1 Corinthians 2 and the discussion of the spirit in man and the discernment that we have through the Holy Spirit. And my friend Rick got up here and covered it very nicely today. So it's been fun knowing you. (laughs) No, rather than let that scare me off, They actually motivated me to go full speed ahead. Uh, I've never been afraid of repeating scripture because it's repeated everywhere throughout the scripture and and we appreciate that very much. So let's return to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, we're gonna focus entirely here on verse eight. Acts chapter one, verse eight. I will confess that as you get older, certain problems arise that didn't used to be a problem. Uh, I've had lots of problems over the years with my hearing aids and I recently got them fixed and they're so well fixed that I whisper to my wife and she says, what? Uh, So sometimes if I sound like I'm not speaking up much, it's because I sound like I'm shouting uh, at myself and at you. I'll try to be somewhere in the middle. Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus says to the disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We focus lots of times on various aspects of that and today I wanna focus only on the one word, power. You shall receive power. Now we know that, that's not news to any of us. Nobody in the room is going to be excited and shocked that wow, I didn't know that. I remember some of those epiphanies when I was first coming into the church, but we don't have too many of those anymore. But Christ said, you shall receive power. What is this power? Where does it come from? Can we see the results of having that power among God's people today? What about the results of God's people throughout time? Where is it today? Let's answer some of those questions. I won't promise to answer all of them. I rarely stay on track enough to do that. But we'll cover the material and I hope it will be helpful to you. We want to grasp, if we can, just how incredible is this power that God has shared with his people. 
because it's kind of easy to get so wrapped up in our own diligent efforts to be Christians that we almost overlook the tremendous amount of power that God has given us to do whatever it is he tells us to do and whatever he gives us to do, whatever he, we, he inspires us to do, even the inspiration itself comes through that power. The truth of this entire subject is both overwhelming and wonderful, I believe. Wonderful news that God says, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, I won't go through the story. We just finished it through the day of Pentecost, but we know that that came upon the disciples as a group on that first day of Pentecost in 31 AD. We'll start with, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, we often not only call it the Holy Spirit, we call it God's Holy Spirit. So that pretty much answers the question, doesn't it? But let's look at it in Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. Mark one, beginning in verse nine. Mark 1, 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then came a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ himself, at least symbolically at this point, received a visible evidence of the Holy Spirit. And John had been told, upon whom you see this dove ascending, or descending, sorry, you should know who this is. This is the Son of God. But the voice came at least in authority and power, from God the Father who said, this is my beloved Son. <clears throat> so when Christ received the Holy Spirit in that symbolic form, and I say that because there are other scriptures that indicate that Christ had the Spirit throughout his life. It was by that Spirit that he lived. But when he received it here, it's very clear it came from God the Father. Now, I realize there is a theological debate that has raged for 2,000 years among the established churches about whether the Spirit emanates from the Father or from the Son. That's kind of irrelevant to our discussion today and irrelevant probably to life for any of us. Luke chapter 4. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. Just, to, just as reminders, really, of things we, we know well. Luke chapter 4. Verse 14, in Luke 4, 14, we read this. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Now this is following the confrontation with Satan the devil in the wilderness, and Satan is having to slink away defeated. But Jesus Christ came back full of the Spirit, and his fame went out through all the region. Various translations uh, express it in various ways, but it's all the same meaning, of course. Why? Because of the work that he did, because of the fruits of the Spirit, because of his teaching, because of his commitment, because of his zeal. He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. You can go through a whole long list of reasons that Christ's fame went out through all the region. Healings, feeding thousands of people with virtually nothing. <clears throat> Explanations and prophecies of things that they only had thin knowledge about. So he returned in the power and the spirit to Galilee and the fame went throughout the region round about. All right, let's go to John chapter three, since we're traversing the gospels here. John chapter three. Verse 
34. This is a discussion of Christ's identity. Maybe we should pick up a couple of things in verse 31 if you don't worry too much about scratching your notes. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthy and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. So all of his teaching and preaching kind of fell on deaf ears for a period of time. But verse 33 says, for he, I'm sorry, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true for whom God sent, for whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This appears to be saying, again, uh, not creating doctrine here, I think we basically understand this, that this means that Jesus Christ did have the spirit without measure, that he was not limited as you and I are by our own human na carnal nature and our experience in education in the world, but was given the Holy Spirit fully to act according to the plan that he and the Father had established before he ever came to the earth. <clears throat> the Father loves the Son and has given him all things. Again, we could go through numerous scriptures to support any and all of this, but that would not necessarily improve the discussion today or accomplish the purpose. But God gave Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit apparently without measure and apparently from birth in that sense because he never ever sinned. He was always in perfect harmony with the Father. So the Holy Spirit comes from God. The Holy Spirit is the power of God himself and the agency by which he carries out and accomplishes his work in this world. God is accomplishing things in this world, not only through us as I stand here and you sit there and we talk about God and his work. There's lots of things going on in the world, in the church and outside the church, in which God is no doubt engaged. We don't always know. He doesn't always tell us exactly how he's engaged. We do have the framework. We do have the overview of prophecy. We do know what God's bringing about which ultimately results in his kingdom established on this earth. But there are no doubt things God is engaged in today that are far too great for you and I, and to probably things that are going to affect us in the future that we don't even know. Maybe those secret things that belong to God are not just limited to a few of the secret things in here that we can't always figure out, but the secret things that God is doing to maintain his authority and his direction of the world in which we live. We talk about it being Satan's world, and it is. He is the God of this world in terms of rejection of God's way and the motivation of human beings to reject God, but it's still God's world, and God's still in charge, and just as Satan had to slink away from Christ in the wilderness, uh, so he has to slink away from whatever plan he has when God overrules him and when God prevents him from doing whatever dirty work he might be about. We also know from the record that God allows him to do some of that work sometimes and that that is part of the development of the plan and part of the prophecies that were laid out for us long ago. Mr. Bennis reminded me that some of you like a title, so I wrote one in right here. The title of this sermon, it is at the top of the sermon, but I don't often mention it, is The Spirit of Power. The Spirit of Power. Since we have been given of the Holy Spirit of power, we ought to be mindful of how that power works, how it has worked in the past, and how it can be used in us. I want to look for a little bit at some of the miracles that we read about. And again, we could, we could read such a long list of miracles that we could be here all day and preach till midnight like Paul did, and we still wouldn't get through all of them. I don't think that's necessary either but we will go through a few examples of God working through the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purpose. I would ask you up front, what part of the miracles that we read about in the scripture, what part of the miracles that God has performed that Christ specifically personally performed on this earth, 
What percentage, what part, how many of those miracles were accomplished by and through the Holy Spirit? If you had that on a test today, what would you put down? This is not a test unless you consider listening to certain sermons a test. The easy and short answer is all of it. Every part, all things which God does in the world, has done in the world, and will do in the world, so far as he reveals to us, are done through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is his very nature and power emanating out to his creation. God has done incredible things, and I didn't even try to pick out the most incredible in one sense because that would be a bit of a subjective judgment, I suppose, depending on who we are and where where we focus our attention. But one thing is pretty clear. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. I know I'm not going to the beginning, which I often do. I'm going to Genesis 1, verse 2. Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, or tohu and bohu, or waste and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And then we have this simple little sentence here, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God had apparently decided to intervene in the situation And God sent forth his spirit. His spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, in a sense, waiting for the command. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. We have read that so many times that I think sometimes we almost take it for granted. We almost let it be trite. It's almost, of course, well, of course, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Everybody knows that. Man's tried, to, man's tried to accomplish similar things, and what we end up with? Walk in the house and clap your hands and turn on the lights. Now you say, Alexa, turn on the lights, start my favorite music. Do dinner, feed the dog. Let there be light. And there was light. God has such incredible power that what we think of as power in our nuclear world, all of which, by the way, flows from his power in some form or another. He is the source of all power. What we think of as great power, which can wipe human life off the earth, which it could, is sort of irrelevant. It's sort of nothing in God's sight. Certainly not going to stop Christ's return and overcome him as the conquering king. So the Spirit of God moved on the water. Now we're all here today because of what flows from this in the next uh, couple of chapters, because when we read the Sabbath command, it says we're here and we keep the Sabbath and God sanctified it, set it apart because in six days he created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them and rested the seventh day. So first and foremost, this day as we sit here resting from our worldly labors, is a rest day, is a memorial of the creation of which he is the author and after which he rested. It means lots of other things, and we go to prophecy in the future and all that, but we must never forget that this Sabbath day is a memorial of that creation when the Spirit moved on the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. Now, God has continued to carry out his work in that way. Let's go to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. I keep looking up for the clock and seeing Church of God, a Worldwide Association Incorporated, Dallas, Texas. You have no more time. Oh, no, the clock is actually over there somewhere, but it's kind of in the dark. Psalm 104, verse 30. Let's start in verse 29, sorry again. Verse 29, you hide your face, they are troubled. That is, if God's not involved, everything goes haywire. 
You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. We're nothing. We have nothing to hold up to show God of who we are and how great our power is. <clears throat> then it says in verse 30, you send forth your spirit. They are created. You renew the face of the earth. That obviously happened in that context in Genesis 1 verse 2, but we know it happened in other contexts. We don't even know how many contexts it might have happened in, really, because God doesn't reveal all of that to us. We do know it happened again after the flood, for example, different way, different circumstance, but that's what God brought about. We know it's going to happen again in the future when Christ is ruling on this earth and God sends forth his spirit to renew the face of the earth and make it a beautiful and abundant and productive habitat for man. You send forth your spirit. They are created. You renew the face of the earth. Now God can do anything he wants, any way he wants, any time he wants, but God also sometimes creates we use the word a little bit loosely, but God creates through man by giving him special abilities, special talent, special capacity, miraculous support, maybe. Something that you're trying to do, but God's actually doing through you. Exodus chapter 31. Remember now, we're just kind of reviewing how this Holy Spirit has brought forth incredible fruit, which we often talk about on the day of Pentecost, but I don't think we actually talk, but yes, Mr. Giese did a bit about the specific fruits of the Spirit that we talk about from Galatians 5, but any righteousness, any action that involves righteousness, faith, etc., they all come from the fruit of that Holy Spirit. Of course, faith is mentioned in that list. Let's go to Exodus 31, verse 1. This is the time of the building of the tabernacle. Then the eternal spoke to Moses saying, see, I have called by name Bezalel. At least that's what we call him. That might be pronounced a little differently. I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Personally, specifically, by name, called him, chose him, pulled him out of the crowd. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and work in all manner of workmanship. And it goes on and on, and he appoints other people to do similar things on a smaller scale or a lower level, working under Bezalel's supervision apparently but God says I've given him the things that he needs sort of reminds me of the statement that Peter makes when he says God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness there's nothing missing in the formula there's nothing missing in the scripture that we're struggling to know because without it we will fall short of salvation doesn't exist he has given us all that pertains to life and godliness. That's a spiritual parallel in a sense with what he did here with Bezalel with physical talents and abilities. Now, did that include some level of conversion? It doesn't say. It doesn't really say except wisdom and knowledge and understanding go pretty far toward what we think about as spiritual conversion, spiritual understanding as Mr. Bennett described earlier. It's not ours to judge whether he's converted, what his future was, etc. We know many of those others in the group. Moses and Joshua and others were certainly converted. But he said, I filled him with the Spirit of God. That's not necessarily talking about conversion. It's talking about the power of God being delegated to Bezalel to do his job. To fulfill God's purpose, which he did. One Small example, really. Conversely, God can make things and does make things happen by limiting man's ability or man's capacity in certain situations, doesn't he? 
We don't want to be on that side of the ledger. I don't want to be in the bracket where God says, uh, I, I want to accomplish something really negative in the world, and I think I'm going to give Larry Salyer some of my spirit to cause him to blow it. You don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. Now, when I say that, of course, I'm talking about power. I'm not talking about conversion. I'm talking about limiting my capacity or your capacity as he limited, for example, Pharaoh's. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You can see that I really dug deeply into the scriptures to find obscure things you didn't know. Obscure things such as Romans 9, verse 17. <clears throat> Romans 9, Paul talking about God doing what he wants, when he wants, and however he wants to do it, and showing mercy on whom he will show mercy. Paul says in verse 17, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, quote, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show by my, I'm sorry, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, Pharaoh was not an innocent victim in that sense. Pharaoh, Pharaoh had already laid down a pretty tough track record. But Christ here, as the God that was interfacing with them at the time, says, I raised you up, I put you here, I gave you this job, and the mind and the thinking and the attitude you have, not that God put it there, but God allowed that to develop under Satan's influence in Pharaoh, and then he says, so that I could show my power in you. Not my power to convert you, but my power to blot you out if I choose. My power to destroy your kingdom. My power to make it clear that I'm in charge here. So Pharaoh becomes an instrument in God's hands and by the Spirit of God, as indicated by my power in you, to resist God, to harden his heart. God says, I will harden his heart. I have hardened his heart. There's a spiritual connection between that spirit and man Mr. Bennis was talking about and the spirit of God working in our brains and in our minds to make us think or see things a certain way or shall I say to fail to see them a certain way. Pharaoh could only see his own natural human ambition, his own future, his legacy, his hope for fame and fortune. We have some of that going on in the world today, do we not? So God used Pharaoh in what we might call, from a human perspective, a negative way. Yet that negative action on Pharaoh's part was designed to promote the ultimate result God wanted, which was the deliverance of Israel from the slavery of Egypt and fulfill the promise to Abraham. So God knew what he was doing, and he did it at whatever cost to Pharaoh might have been required. Let's look at another individual, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. It would take, in a sense, the entire chapter to tell the story, but we only need a little bit of it. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar writes, in a sense, the history of it. He had had a dream, and that dream was, of course, worrisome and frustrating to him. And here's how he describes it later. I'll use this first Analysis, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. <laughs> Some of us have been there and done that. 
uh, you wake up and everything troubles you. You can't go back to sleep or you, you just are frustrated and worried and fearful. Well, in Nebuchadnezzar's case, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar's case, he had a pretty good reason for feeling that way. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men, etc. Let's go down, verse 8. But at last Daniel came before me, whose name was Belteshazzar. So Belteshazzar, of course, says to him, let me give you the answer from God. And he delivers the answer. Verse 20. Verse 20, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could not uh, could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the end of the earth. But guess what? You're going to be cut down. Verse 25, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall make, they shall make, they shall make. Who's going to be able on the human level to take an individual with the glory and power of Nebuchadnezzar and turn him into a virtual animal in the pasture? Not men. Why does this happen? Verse, middle of verse 25, they shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So again, this is to fulfill God's purpose of making it clear that God is in charge, that God rules in the kingdom of men and that it doesn't matter how great or powerful a king or a nation might be, or perhaps if we brought it down to more of a real scale in our lives, some corporate CEO or, or you know, some oligarch, somebody who thinks he is it. God can change that by intervening and causing things to, to go wrong in life in order to accomplish his purpose. He's done it over and over again many times and sometimes he just takes the shortcut and says the Bible simply gives us one verse that says he was evil so God killed him I took care of that uh, I'm not sure I haven't witnessed that very thing uh, in my lifetime in the church or somebody persecuting the church and condemning God and God's people simply died disappeared from the scene I have two experiences in my life where I think that probably happened that God probably actually intervened and made it happen. But I can't say that for sure because God didn't tell me. God doesn't generally whisper in my ear like I, Mr. Blackwell used to say he whispered in Mr. Armstrong's ear. All right, so we see that God can intervene to bring about his will, even if it means a negative interaction with somebody on the physical level. Let's go to, to 1 Samuel, sorry, 1 Samuel can't read my own typing. Good thing it's typed, not written. It says first S.A. for Samuel, but I read it as Isaiah. I know it's not in Isaiah. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now you can find your own list and you could do however you wanted to to further extend this thought or this study, I'm only giving you a few references that more or less came to my mind off the top of my head, and then I went and chased down a few things to, uh, to confirm them, but they're here. 1 Samuel 16. We know, of course, here that all of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, and God said, this is not he. But finally, they brought in David, the shepherd boy, and in verse 12, the eternal said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the eternal came upon David from that day forward. Now, I emphasize that because there are other places, including with Saul, where it says the spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
And there are times when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon people for a short period of time to accomplish a very specific purpose, but there's no evidence that they become God's long-term servants or uh, actually are converted. But here it says of David, that spirit came upon him from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went away, went back home to Ramah. Ramah. So David receives the spirit of God to become king of Israel. But at some point in that process, excuse me, whether that was his actual conversion, I'm not an authority on that at all. Actually, I'm not an authority on anything, but whether David was actually converted there doesn't say, but it does say he had the spirit from that day forward. And we later find in Psalm 51, I'm not going to turn there, but we know it well, when David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And we know, of course, that David became a man after God's own heart. And again, going back to Mr. Bennis's sermon, that would not have been possible without the Holy Spirit to witness with his spirit that he was the son of God. Like you and I are children of God once the spirit witnesses with our spirit, as Paul so clearly describes it. So David, who became a man after God's own heart, did so at least over time through God's spirit working in him to do physical work and then spiritual work with wisdom and knowledge and understanding that the king of Israel had to have through sin and repentance, falling short and realizing that he couldn't do it by himself and that only God working in him and through him could do it. Let's move forward to 1 Chronicles chapter 14. And I have to admit I'm using this one partly because I've just always enjoyed the expression so much. 1 Chronicles chapter 14. And we're going to go to verse 15 with maybe a little limping along. Chapter 14, verse 15. David here, and we will back up a minute. David here has, is in battle with the Philistines and he's trying to figure out his strategy and how he's going to win this battle. And he has decided to take certain action. And God comes along and says, Verse 14, therefore David inquired again of God, and God said to him, you shall not go up after them, circle around them, and come up on them in front of the mulberry trees. I, I just enjoy this whole account because obviously God is going to do what God's going to do. And that's something we need to keep in mind, that God's going to bring about his purpose in the church, in the world, and in us individually, but he's not always going to do it the way we think or the strategy that we would use. We think we got it figured out sometimes, and we find out, wait a minute, I didn't learn that lesson, and later God teaches it to us his way, and we say, oh, okay, now I get it. Now, maybe you haven't lived long enough, especially some of you younger Christians, you haven't lived long enough to experience some of that. You probably will experience some of that, where God shows you he does it his way. <clears throat> Come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Seems so mundane, so simple. Then God says, and it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. <laughs> when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. So David did as God commanded him, and they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. Then the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Eternal brought the fear of him upon all nations. Look at the action and look at the results. The results are that David is amazingly famous and seen as powerful and fearful. That is, what's the word? To be feared. What the mulberry trees got to do with it? Well, the fact that David 
obeyed what God told him to do. God said, don't do it that way, do it this way. And so David did it that way and smote the Philistines very powerfully because God told him how to do it. And it wasn't some major thing. It was like the still small voice we talk about or this or that other example that the Bible gives us. God wants it done his way and God is capable of doing it and God is the power that brings it about through his Holy Spirit, which is his power emanating from him into the creation. You hear a noise in the top of the mulberry trees. Could God not have just smote the Philistines right up front? Could God not have let David go forward with his plan and just blessed his actions? Could God not have made him just all fall down as he did in some other cases? Of course he could have. It appears there's something here that he wants David to recognize, just as he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to, to recognize. I am the God of the universe. I'm the God that's in charge here, and we'll do it my way this time. And of course, David learned that lesson, and as we said, became a man after God's own heart. Let's do one more quickly here in 2 Kings. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 2. There are probably more dramatic ones in the life of Elijah in some ways, but Elisha was a very special servant of God with some very important lessons for us through the examples that God gives us of his life and work. Second Kings chapter two, it takes a little longer to set this up. Verse 19, um, sorry, let me get this right. I think I'm in the wrong chapter. Took even longer to set it up. He's starting the wrong place. It's <laughs> going to be hard to get there. Second uh, Kings chapter 2, verse 19. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. And he said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. Cruz in the old King James, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, Thus says the Eternal, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. Now we've seen this example several times in various uh, stories in the history of Israel. Verse 22, So the water remains healed to this day according to the word of Elisha which he spoke. Again, could God not have done that without the salt? There was, a, there was something to be learned, and there was an example for the sons of the prophets to see how Elisha fulfilled God's work for him. But not everybody got the message, of course. The world around still continued to function the way it always does. And so in verse uh, 23, he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him. The word youths or children, sometimes in the old King James, it, it's not totally definite, but it obviously means probably somewhere in the, in the early teens or something of that sort where kids tend to get in trouble and mock and carry on. <clears throat> they mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. They're just picking on him because he's got a bald head, evidently. But their attitude is ignoring the fact that this is a servant of God, and they may have known that. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Eternal, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of them. Busy bears. Two she-bears came out and mauled 42 of them. So you have the example of Elisha doing a, a tremendous miracle which of course is coming from God through Elisha and then you have the bears themselves which apparently are motivated by God to do this this isn't an automatic result of the kids mocking teenagers maybe mocking Elisha this is this is an incident that is followed by God's intervention to show you don't fool around with my servant God sends forth his spirit to do these things. It doesn't always mention specifically 
the Holy Spirit in these examples, but when you look at the way the Bible expresses the power of the Holy Spirit and the miracles that were done on behalf of God, there is no question that this agency is involved. And so when we keep the day of Pentecost and, and we think about the importance of being a part of God's family and having the Holy Spirit, uh, we ought not to in any way minimize the power that God's made available to us individuals, to us as a church, and to his servants wherever and whenever they might appear on the earth. Matthew chapter 1, perhaps the, the more dramatic of, well certainly today, the more dramatic of the examples I'm using. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Here is an incredible miracle. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Christ himself is a product of God sending forth his spirit to accomplish an absolute miracle of creating a pregnancy in a virgin woman. And again, that is so commonly talked about in today's world, even outside our understanding, that we might take it for granted and take it too lightly. She is pregnant as a result of God's power coming upon her. And that's said in other places, the power of God will overshadow you, etc., And you will conceive. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is born in an absolute, fantastic, seemingly, quote, unscientific way because God chose to do it that way. Because God had chosen long, long before to do it that way and prophesied that it would happen and now brings it about exactly as he said he would. Because God's spirit does not fail when God sends it forth to do his work it's accomplished. I'm going to fall back on Paul here who said, time would fail me to tell of this one and this one and this one in Hebrews 11. And I'm going to say there are other examples, but time has failed me to tell of them. But they're there and you know they're there. And I want to come to another in the New Testament and that is the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 15, Romans 15. We're going to go to verse 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient. So Paul had a calling, he had a purpose, he was told he was going to the Gentiles, and he says, God gave me what I needed to accomplish that. In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And you see Paul confident like that in many situations. While he can humble himself and talk about himself and put himself down as a sinner, he also knows and advertises that God has done mighty things through me, but the glory goes to God, not to me. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. So he goes on through his calling and his responsibility. But Paul makes it very clear that his work and his activity was made possible by the Holy Spirit working in him and through him. We tend to limit it because we think of it only sometimes, I think, as the 
as the impregnation of our minds to make us the children of God. It is a very powerful reality that the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. But that's not all of it. The Holy Spirit is at work all over the place, all of the time, as God directs. And that same spirit has been given to us. We know Paul's miracles were many, and we don't even have a lot of the details. He gives us bits and pieces. Uh, surviving the lions at Ephesus or shaking off the vipers on, uh, where was it, the island of Crete or Cyprus or someplace, shaking off the, the vipers into the fire and they pay, expected him to swell up and die and when he didn't they thought he was God. He preached till midnight and Eutychus fell asleep and fell out of the window and was dead. It says he was taken up dead and Paul said, hang on, and did as Christ did with Lazarus in that sense and raised him up. Incredible miracles, incredible things done by human beings only and entirely by the power of God working in them and through them in ways that they could never imagine. You think when Paul was being, was blind and Ananias was laying hands on him and saying, uh, Brother Paul, arise, and then God saying, I have much work for you to do. I'm sure Paul was thinking, yeah, I'm going to raise the dead. Now, I suspect Paul had not a clue, but God basically told him was you're going to suffer a lot in this job. And he did. Through the Spirit of God, he was able to endure that suffering, but he also did many remarkable and wonderful things. Let's go to the concept of conversion in our lives, because with conversion, it's kind of a backward way of saying it. With conversion comes the Holy Spirit. The conversion comes because of and by the Holy Spirit. So we are converted when God's Spirit becomes a part of us. John chapter 1. So we want to look a little bit now at not only the power that has existed through the ages and been used in very powerful ways in others. We want to look at a little bit at what's happening in us. John chapter 1. Let's go to verse 11. John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, meaning basically the, the Jews and the Israelites around. Came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. This is a very, very important verse to all of us, and particularly in the aftermath of Pentecost. As many as received him, to them he gave the right, or the authority, as the margin says, to become children of God to those who believe in his name. To those who received him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Now, we read in other places how that occurs. It's not stated here, but the power is clearly the power of God working in us to make it possible. Going on over to John 6 and our fundamental verse about our calling and conversion, John 6, verse 44. John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It's a process and it's a plan of salvation. And when God brings me somebody, I'm going to work in him and through him, Christ says, until he can be raised up in that great resurrection at the end of the age. I'll raise him up at the end. He will be a part of my family. He will be co-heirs with me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know our calling is a miracle. We talk about that sometimes. Our calling is absolutely a great miracle accomplished through the Holy Spirit being sent to combine with our spirit to make us converted human beings who become the begotten children of God to be born fully into the family at the resurrection. 2 Peter chapter 1. If I were preaching to a, an audience 
uneducated in the truth. I'd have to say a lot more of that, but I think that's probably enough to make the point. First, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 2 Peter This is the scripture I quoted before. Let's skip over verses one and two and start in verse, I'm sorry, and start in verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature is, in a sense, the spirit of God. It is the character of God. It's the power of God. It's the capacity of God. We're partakers of that. Not without measure, necessarily, because of our own limitations, but probably with a lot less measure than we require of it because we limit ourselves. And because we do not really believe and practice emotional religion and, and uh, sort of uh, almost a false impression of happiness and joy when behind us is, is misery and pain and suffering, as some religious folks do. Because we don't do that, I fear that sometimes we don't even really rejoice and enjoy the truth of the Holy Spirit working in us, which makes us the children of God. How can we, how can we not appreciate that so much that we cannot really even thank God enough for it. We've been given great and precious promises that we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he tells us what we need to do. And again, we sometimes are accused of being Christians who believe in salvation by works, which is not true, but because sometimes we are so diligent and so focused on what we have to do and not maybe quite as expressive of what God is doing in us and through us, and there's a fine line there. Maybe we ourselves do not appreciate and enjoy the calling and the blessings that we have to the degree that we ought to do. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Let's go to the master, the savior himself, John chapter five. John chapter five, a very important principle that we often emphasize a bit during the days of unleavened bread. John chapter five and verse 30, where Jesus himself says this, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We limit ourselves when we pursue our own will. We limit ourselves when we seek what we want, what we have predetermined is the outcome we want to see. And we all do it, at least I think we all do. Maybe I'm guilty of things that nobody else is. But we limit ourselves and we limit that power. When Christ himself said, I can in my own self do nothing. If Christ could do nothing, what can we do? Sure, we have a part to play and we have work to do. But we are not able to accomplish our own salvation. So how do we live this Christian life? How do we succeed in being there on that day of the resurrection. I won't turn there for time now, but Mark 10, verse 27, Christ told the disciples, with man it's impossible. This had to do with the camel going through the eye of a needle or a rich man entering the kingdom of God, etc. He said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things, all things are possible, except for missing the microphone. All things are possible. And it's hard for us to live that way. I get frustrated about little things that are ridiculous. And I get so frustrated about them, I'm just kind of perplexed. And how do I, how do I deal with this? Finally, I break through that and realize, hey, if God's letting me go through this for whatever reason, I better, I better uh, 
learn the lesson or I better get on with my life and not let Satan the devil drag me down to believing that God doesn't care. What's my point here? Well, I think we can do more than we think we can if we rely more on God and less on ourselves. For example, is our prayer, God help me, I need your help to add to me that one little thing that I lack. <laughs> I think we've probably, in some cases, in some part of our conversion, prayed that way. Add to me that thing that I lack. When in reality, we lack everything and God's given us a little bit. So we should be praying, forgive me for all of these lacks and provide what I have need of. Help me to stay out of the way of your powerful spirit, which can do all things in me, if I'm willing to seek your will, not my own. We're told very clearly, Colossians 1, I'm not going there either, Colossians 1, 27, that Christ in us is the hope of glory. I'm not putting aside our work, our responsibility to do what we know to do and to follow God's commands and listen to God's counsel. I am and have been for decades a, a um, proponent of the principle that Mr. Armstrong used to express, and I think I quote, we ought to do everything we can as if it all depends upon us and then pray as if it all depends on God. Of course, ultimately, it does all depend on God, doesn't it? So we do what we can do, and we pray for God's blessing on how we do it, but really, we pray as if we can't do anything, and God has to do it all. If we're praying to God, add that little thing that I lack so I can be perfect, uh, we're probably missing the point. After, in my personal opinion, after 59 years of trying to obey God personally in my life, I think most of us, and I do include myself, still spend too much time trying to avoid sin instead of putting on righteousness. And we discuss that during Unleavened Bread, but maybe not enough. We spend a lot of time on getting rid of sin and even on the Passover sacrifice itself, which God gave us, and only God could, but do we spend that much time and effort on how we can put on righteousness, which comes from God as well? Spirit of God is still moving on the face of the waters. And we are those waters, and God is still working among us. Seeking the kingdom of God is not something a carnal mind can do, nor is it something we can bring about. God will accomplish it through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, just as he's accomplished all other miracles that have ever happened on the earth. A couple of final scriptures. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. No surprises here. Isaiah chapter 11. Just want to read a few scriptures to remind us of, in a sense, what we're about, why we're here, where we're going, what we look for, what the future holds. And what we pray about, probably, hopefully, virtually every day of our lives, in some form or another, thy kingdom come. Isaiah 11, let's start in verse 1. Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2, notice again, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the eternal the God who sends forth his spirit is going to send it forth upon God himself, the Son of God. God is going to express by the spirit of God the character and the meaning and the purpose of life. The spirit of the eternal shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What's that produce? His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. God's going to do what it takes. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The result, verse nine, skipping down the, over the specifics, verse nine, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Wow, how we should long for and pray for that. Not, not necessarily just for our own salvation's sake, but for the sake of humanity. Not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. How do you suppose that's going to happen? No man can come to me except the Father call him, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God's going to do it. He's going to bring about the salvation of the human race. Let's jump over to chapter 46, one of my favorite go-to scriptures when I'm a little discouraged, which I'm not, by the way. I'm very happy, very excited about a wedding of my grandchildren and very excited about having the whole family together, though assuredly it's a bit limited when you got so many and so many different, going in so many different ways and so many families mixed in. Very interesting histories in that whole situation that I can't take time to discuss, but very satisfying uh, situation. Isaiah 46, verse 9 <clears throat> Sorry, I want to start in verse 5, I believe. <clears throat> Isaiah 46, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? <laughs> well, the answer is probably nobody. Verse 8. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O transgressors, remember the former things of old. Well, we've done a little of that today. We went back through some of the former things of old, not the history of ancient Israel and their murmurings and God's deliverance, but rather some of the tremendous miracles that God has performed in various kinds of people and circumstances down through the ages. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other, the creator God who created this Sabbath day. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. You can count on it. You can depend on it. My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I will do all my pleasure. Verse 13. Let's skip down to verse 13. I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off, my salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. The Spirit of God is moving on the earth today. It's moving in you and me if we permit it to do so. And we will succeed if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and yield and surrender our lives to his will and not pursue our own. We have a glorious future ahead. Let's go find it. 